This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. I'm going to start laying a foundation this morning on a series about the blood covenant. A number of years back, the blood covenant was in vogue. Everybody taught blood covenant. But now we seem to have let go of blood covenant thinking, well, everybody knows it. And I've come to realize the majority of Christians, even those who went through that teaching, had no understanding of what was going on. Their understanding was so limited. And we need to realize that you and I have a personal relationship with the God of all glory because of blood covenant relationship. Nothing else. This is not primitive. There's a primitive right that is being um, that, 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 was, that was instituted and followed back then. But I want you to realize this is vital. This is alive. This is something which is vibrant. Without it, you do not have a relationship with God. And so we need, to, we need to see just how this impacts us. And so we're going to be starting this morning, and I'm going to be looking this morning at what I've called the structure of the blood covenant. The structure of the blood covenant. Next week, despite the two services... Teaching and ministry is going to be the same. The ministry of the second service will be like it is here. There'll be very limited ministry and the first service. Very limited ministry. So if you're not needing ministry, if you're needing ministry, come to the second one. Because in all probability, there'll be very little ministry at the first service. There'll be a lot of teaching of the Word. So you can sort out what you want. Praise and worship will be the same. And we're not going to put the Holy Spirit in a box, but we believe this is what the Holy Spirit has instructed us to do. When he arrived, his throat was parched, his throat was dry, he felt like he needed a bath, his brothers had embraced him, their greeting had been very superficial, and he was standing there amidst the clamor that normally accompanies arriving in an army camp. There was movement all over the place until a sound came forth that caused everybody to stop. And all the action stopped round about him. And he stood there, and he was uncertain what to do. He wasn't part of the camp. He was visiting the camp. And as he stood there, a voice bellowed forth a challenge that brought the entire army to a halt. And the sun beat down. And the dust from shuffling feet settled. And the voice echoed and reverberated across the valley, challenging the army. David stood there and he waited for a response. Because the challenge that had been thrown down was a challenge that invited any one who would champion the cause of the army of God to come down and do battle with this giant Goliath. And whoever won, that army would be served by the army whose champion had been defeated. And he waited there with bated breath, expecting people to clamor to take up the challenge. And no move was made. 
And he waited, and the dust settled, and the perspiration ran down. The dust settled on the perspiration, and nobody moved. And he nudged his brother, and he said, Why is nobody taking up the challenge? And the brothers, in all probability, because their lack of backbone was exposed, got mad with him and talked about him elbowing his way in, even though he'd brought provisions from the Father, elbowing his way in to their sphere of activity, about which he knew nothing, and he should go back and go and tend his sheep. And again the challenge came forth. And they told him, this has been going on for some time. And he said, is there not a person here who will stand up and take up the cause? I'll do it, says David. And they usher him into the king. And the king tries to dress him in his armor. And David says, this is ridiculous. This isn't even made for me. Take it off. I don't need this. And the king says, well, on what basis are you going to go in against this, this enemy? He said, the lion and the bear are what I can point to. I couldn't overcome it. These are not, this is not a lion and this is not a bear, says the king. This is a giant somewhere between uh, eight and a half feet to ten feet tall. Have a look at the size of his spear. It's like a weaver's beam. And he's got a man standing in front of him holding up his shield. You're going to go and do battle with him. With what? You see, in our mind's eyes, we picture five stones. We picture David crossing the brook, picking up five stones and a sling, and going in against an enemy nearly twice his size, because David at this stage was probably somewhere between the age of 14 and 16 years of age. Untried in battle, untrained in battle, and yet, he is taking up the cause that the rest of the army had been trained to do, and that was to be God's army in the earth. But they had lost sight of a very important aspect. They had lost sight of the truth that they had a covenant with God. And when you do not know that you have a covenant with God, you will not be able successfully to engage the enemy. Because your covenant extends to every area of your life, provides you with everything and on the basis of the covenant. You see, what was it that defeated Goliath? It wasn't the stones. It was David's faith in his covenant. Now, we're going to be talking about covenant, you see, because I came to a realization, I can get a whole lot of knowledge concerning the Christian experience, but how come we are so mediocre? How come we are always in lack? How come we're always trying and never succeeding? We always seem to be reaching and never gaining. Why is it? 
And whether that's the area of, of the physical realm or whether it's spiritually, uh, whether it's in the area of relationships, whatever it is. Why? And I, I, I really am persuaded it's because the vast majority of God's people do not realize we have a covenant with God. They have no understanding of covenant relationship. We name our churches something, something covenant. Covenant this, covenant that, and we've got no understanding of what we're talking about. Because if we had understanding, David understood it. David said, I'll handle him. You, who didn't have understanding of covenant? All the people around David who criticized him. You going to handle him? Because David knew that one with God was a majority. It wasn't just in the head. It was a persuasion in the heart. David had a very deep insight and understanding of covenant relationship. And I believe that this is one of the most important teachings of which a Christian could ever gain understanding. This is going to transform your life through transforming your understanding and your insight of your privileged position in Christ. The word covenant is not a word that is readily understood in present-day America. We use it. We have no understanding, very little understanding, of what it means. In history, the history of the world, you'll find that the Norsemen, the Vikings, the Greeks, the Asians, the Oriental nations, they bear clear record to the existence of blood covenant relationships in their history. Even today in the Philippines, they have a note that's part of their currency. And if you have a look at it, you'll find on that note two men cutting blood covenant relationships. A blood covenant is the most sacred covenant that can exist between people. It's an everlasting covenant. It is indissoluble. And it cannot be annulled. When you've entered into it, you're committed. Let me give you just very briefly a definition of blood covenant. A covenant, to take the word blood out for a moment, the, uh, the word covenant means very simply this. It's a contract between at least two people. You know, you can't have agreement with somebody who isn't there. You can't have agreement with yourself. You've got to have at least one other person. So you've got to have at least two parties to an agreement. A covenant, another word for covenant, is agreement, contract. But it's not the loose kind of agreement that we seem to have had permeate our society. There was a time in this country... When you could go to a person and on the basis of a handshake agree on something that equated to perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars and they would not renege on it. You could take the person at their word. We've lost that integrity. And I'm sorry to have to say, folks, but we've lost that kind of integrity and crept even into the church. You can't, very few people, can you take them at their word? When they say, I'll be there, man, please, Jesus, as you're driving there, let them be there. Please, Lord, let them be there. Nudge your neighbor and say, not me. <laughs> Careful when you say it. Some of you didn't say anything. <laughs> That's all right. That's okay. Now, blood covenant is a covenant confirmed A covenant between two people confirmed by the shedding of blood. 
both parties are going to bleed. The life is in the blood. You probably, as you grew up, got a best buddy. You're going to enter into a blood covenant. So you take this and you prick your thumb. They prick their thumb and you put it together. Now we. That was not the beginning of blood covenant relationship. You understand that? Principles are there, though. The life is in the blood. And when I give my blood, I'm giving my life. When you give your blood, you're giving your life. Now the interesting thing about blood covenant relationship is this. Listen very carefully. Because we're going to be having a look, and we're just setting up the structure here. As a result of entering into blood covenant relationship with a person, everything you own and everything you owe becomes theirs as well. Everything they own, everything they owe becomes yours. All the assets and liabilities. So when you enter into blood covenant relationship. Make sure you're entering into covenant with the right person. See, if uh, John and I are in blood covenant relationship, and we are, by virtue of being in Christ, we're in blood covenant relationship. I can go to John and say, John, Give me, give me our checkbook. <laughs> That's why I'm careful who I get into covenant with. <laughs> See? Give me our checkbook. It's ours. But at the same time, I make certain that I protect our covenant. Because if I injure John, I'm injuring myself. He and I are one. I'm just laying some principles down and establishing some principles. All your assets are pooled and all your liabilities. Everything you possess and everything you owe becomes your covenant partners as well and vice versa. Now, I'm sure that even though you don't understand this, you'll accept the fact that we are in covenant partnership with God through what Jesus has done. Are we okay there? <laughs> Let me go across here. I didn't get much yaw from this side here. Are we okay? Yeah. Okay. Now, go to 1 John chapter 4. Bear in mind what I've just said. Everything that I own, everything that I owe, all my assets, all my liabilities, become my covenant partners. And everything my covenant partner owes, possesses, and owns become mine. Now, you are now going to get, using that as a basis for understanding, you are now going to get some real good insight as to what John was saying in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. 
the B part of that verse, because, talking about Jesus, as He is, so are we in this world. Hello? Does Jesus have any debts? Now listen, don't be stupid and say to your, to your creditors, I don't have any debts. You want, you want a debt paid? Go to Jesus. <laughs> Is Jesus sick? Is Jesus despondent? Is he depressed because there's not going to be enough to pay the angels next week? He's going to have to lay off a third of the angels because there's just not going to be enough in the payroll. Is Jesus sweating it up there? Is he interceding, saying, I believe the word of God? <laughs> Come on, I'm painting a picture. If you really believe that you're in covenant with him, then as he is, so are we in this world. That doesn't mean you won't have challenges, but it does mean that there is a way for me to handle the challenges so that they do not become a drag on my Christian experience. I don't ignore their existence. I handle them. Jesus doesn't ignore his challenges. Jesus has some challenges. One of them may be sitting right next to you. He doesn't ignore it. He loves you. In fact, he likes you. But he doesn't ignore you, and you might still be a challenge to him. Why is it, and I was interested to hear some of what was coming forth. Why is it, Lord, that we can't get people to get committed to Jesus? What's so difficult about that? I mean, I don't care if I lost everything in this world. That doesn't make any sense in throwing him overboard. Because without him, I, I, I don't have life. With Him and with the Word, I can get back everything that I had and more. Hmm. I'm watching the time. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. Because I'm just laying a foundation. Laying a foundation. I want you, please, to ensure that you bring your Bible along. That's the Bible you should be reading out of every day. That's where you should be feeding your spirit man. You should be making notes. Hebrews chapter 8. I'm talking about covenant relationship. Have a look here at verse 6, please. But now hath he, that's Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Watch the next verse. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. We have two covenants. That book that you hold in your hand is called the Bible. It's comprised of an Old Testament and a New Testament or an old covenant and a new covenant, or an old contract and a new contract. That's what you've got. And we've just read in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 8 
that if the first covenant had been more than sufficient, more than adequate, it would not have to have been superseded. There would be no need for the new covenant. Too many people want to stay in the old covenant and you're living in the wrong covenant. You're going to have to learn to live in the new covenant because the old covenant has been fulfilled. Not done away with, fulfilled. And you've got to learn to live in the new covenant because God's word says, and we're going to see this in the weeks that lie ahead, that the old covenant was not adequate to do what God intended it to do. It couldn't bring us to the place that God wanted us to be. It was only through the institution and the introduction of a new covenant that he was able to do and accomplish what he set out to do from the very beginning, and that is to put his life on the inside of each and every one of those who became God's people, sons and daughters led by the Spirit of God, spiritually alive unto God, no matter where they went in everyday circumstances, able to radiate the life of God into every circumstance and every situation. Now that was his purpose and his plan from the beginning. But until such time as he was able to bring it in, in its fullness, he brought in a covenant which was operating in the natural. We're going to have a look at this. Now, I've given you the word covenant, means testament, and means will. In verse uh, 6 there you found Hebrews 8 verse 6, he is a, the mediator, mediator. The word mediator very simply means one who brings two parties together. One who intervenes and brings agreement. Now, as there are two covenants, an old one and a new one, we need to know what the old one says in order to understand the difference between it and the new covenant. Do you know that the majority of Christians do not know what the new covenant holds for them? They don't even know that they're in a new covenant with God. And if you're in a new covenant with God, then it means that there must have been an old covenant. So in order to understand where we're at, we have to understand the former covenant, the earlier one. Now, under the old covenant, and we're talking here about blood covenant, the word that is used in the Hebrew for blood covenant is the word bereth. And the Hebrew word bereth very simply means this, to cut where blood flows, to cut to a point that blood is able to flow out. Uh, go with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I'll tell you this, and when you get some revelation of what God has provided, this is going to get you so excited. Man, and, and, and it cannot be disannulled. It's everlasting. It is something that He has set in order, and He never can go against it. In Genesis chapter 15, you have a, a story here of God having brought Abraham... Now. Let me back up a little bit. 
Back in the Garden of Eden, God put Adam in the garden, and the purpose of his putting him in the garden, he was created in his image, God's image, and God's likeness. God intended Adam to be God of this world. Uh, all I've got to do is have a look at Scripture to confirm that because God's instructions to Adam was subdue and take dominion. You cannot take dominion if there's somebody above you. Dominion means you're in charge. Uh, it's, it's a word from which we get the word dominate. That means control. And that means you get them to do what you want done. That's dominating. That means that not only have I got the authority, I've got the ability. I can back it up. I can make them do what I want done. That's the word dominion. That's the word dominate. And God says to him, take dominion, subdue. And Adam goes along and everything's hunky-dory in the garden until Adam decides he wants to be like God. He wants to be like the Most High. He wants to know the difference between right and wrong because until such time as he disobeyed God, he didn't have any understanding of wrong. Nothing. God puts him in the garden. Everything is there. God says to him, see that tree there? Everything here is yours. That is mine. Don't you touch that. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says in Genesis 2, 15, he says, In the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. And he doesn't mean fall over. He's not talking cessation of life. He's talking about spiritual death, which is separation from God. In the day that you eat thereof, you will be separated from me spiritually. And the consequence of that is going to be death of the body. The Hebrew expansion is in dying, you will surely die. In dying spiritually, being separated from me, the consequence is this body's going to die. You see, God never created Adam to die. And Adam wasn't created immortal. Immortal means not subject to death. Adam was created eternal, which meant that if he just obeyed the word of God, who is life, he never would have died. Never would have gotten, gotten old. I think we're going to have some discussions with Adam when we get to heaven one day. Okay? Now, Adam goes along and he changes God's. Because whoever it is that you listen to, you're going to end up serving. Careful who you're running with. So he receives this input. Hath God said? Hath God said? Are you sure? He says to Eve. Eve says, I don't know. Do you know, says Satan, that when you eat of that tree, you will be as gods. For you will know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. He didn't at that time, they didn't at that time, have any understanding of evil because evil wasn't in the earth. It was about to come. And when he went along, takes the fruit from Eve and munches it, Adam sinned, the woman was deceived. Don't blame the woman for the condition we're in. It's not her fault. She was ill-informed by Adam. She was deceived, the Word of God says. You can only be deceived if you don't know. He knew. He sinned. That's what the Word of God says. 
And so he goes along and he changes God and immediately he does that. He bows the knee of his will and the crown of dominion which God had placed on his head, God now finds on his arch enemy Satan. And Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, tells us that Satan becomes the God of this world. Now right from that time onwards, God is looking for a means to get back into the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. Now we know that, but the point is this. God had given the earth and its looking after, its care, into the hands of His creation. He'd given Him a lease on this earth. The creation had in turn passed the lease on to God's enemy. And God's enemy now becomes the one who has got a, a legal right to be in the earth. That's why you cannot bind the devil and cast him out of the earth. Time is not right. That's why Jesus didn't do it. Because he has a right to be in the earth legally before God. And so here he is, comes the God of this world. And God looks for a way, and he says, I've got to find a man. I've got to find a way back into the earth because I'm going to bring redemption. And God tries a number of, a number of people in a number of ways. All that God is looking for is a man, a person, who will say, I'll be your person, I'll follow you, I'll believe you, I'll put my trust in you, and through that doing, I will invite you to come in and lead me through my life. It's called faith. You see, this body is what gives you and me legal authority to be in this earth. When you, the spirit man, walk out of that body, you go home. You don't wander around the earth. You don't have any legal right to be here. Your legal right comes to an end when you walk out of that earth suit. But here is a man with an earth suit and God says, I need to get back into the earth. I've got to have somebody invite me in. Now, I don't know what a moon worshiper does. I've never been one. I don't plan to be one. I don't know whether they chant, whether they howl like dogs, whatever they do. I don't know. But whatever it was that they do, Abraham was in full flight in Ur of the Chaldees. I don't know what they do. Hitting tambourines, bouncing. I don't know what they do. God speaks to him. God speaks to a guy worshipping the moon. They call him lunatics. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so here he is worshiping the moon, and God speaks to him, and God says, Pack up everything. I've got a place I want to take you to. Now leave everybody, just your family, come along. And if you're going to be my man and you want this, you're going to have to show that you do by leaving. I'm not even going to tell you where you're going to go to. I'm not going to tell you how long it's going to take you to get there. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen when you do get there. It's called faith. And so Abraham says, 
He's the richest man in the world right there in Ur of the Chaldees. See? He says, I'm your man. Packs up everything, leaves. Hebrews tells us to go to a place he didn't know where. Just following God. Where are you going to, brother? Just following God. Who's God? See, he's talking to all these lunatics around about him. Who's God? But he follows him. And God now starts entering into covenant relationship. God always speaks to us at a level we can understand. And God never changes character. God never stops being God. When the Word of God says that, that God who cannot lie, it's not just applying to Titus. It's applying to from before the foundation of the world. He does not have within him the ability to move away from the truth. Cannot lie. Not doesn't lie. Cannot lie. When God says in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. He wasn't just saying from this time onwards, I won't change. From before the foundation of the world, he couldn't change. He's always the same. And so here in chapter 17, God starts entering into covenant relationship with this man called Abram. Now, we're not going to get into the Abrahamic covenant today. Have a look here at verse 17. Verse 12 tells us that when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Have a look at verse 17. It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And in the same day, the Lord made a covenant, covenant, there it is, with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And God enters into covenant relationship with him there and then. God commits himself, having found a man who would follow him out of his place to a place he didn't even know where he was going. But he recognized God and he said, I'm going to be your man. And God watches his faithful pursuance of God. God watches him follow him, stand against his family if need be. A man who says, I don't know you, but I'm going to spend the rest of my life getting to know you. But what I do know of you on the inside, I know it's right. And so I'm committing myself to this, and he follows him, if you like, blindly. And God checks this out until Genesis 17, and God says, I found my man. You're the man. And God causes a sleep to come on him and he has a vision. We're going to get into that when we do Abrahamic covenant. But I want you to see what happens in that day. God cuts covenant with him. And God has now committed himself to this man. This man hasn't committed himself to God yet. So he commits himself to man. Go across to chapter 17. I want you to realize we're talking about a process of time here. Okay? 
We don't have to go through that process. But God is working with a guy who worshipped the moon. God's working with a guy in a very primitive kind of setting. And God is speaking to him and drawing him and revealing himself to him. And God comes and visits him in tents and, and things like that. And he gets to know God. And he says, I don't know a whole lot about you. But what I know is I know that it's true. I get a real good witness. And I don't have to know a whole lot about you because what I get on the inside is enough to persuade me that's the direction I'm going to be going for the rest of my life. Now, if you get down to chapter 17, uh, starting to read here at verse 23. And Abraham, now this is what has basically happened in the interim. God has said to Abraham, uh, if, if, if this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you this way. I'm going to bless you this way. I'm going to bless you. He takes him outside the tent and he says, you check the sand of the, sea, uh, of, of, of the seashore over here. Just check it out. As, as multiplied as this is, that's how I'm going to make you see. Have a look at the heavens. Check out the heavens. You see the stars? You can't count them. But that's how your seed is going to be. God checks out two things. Natural, earth, spiritual, sky. Natural seed, spiritual seed, natural seed, spiritual seed, natural seed, spiritual seed. God's starting to introduce two covenants. Abraham has no understanding of it. A covenant that will govern your natural seed. And a covenant then that's going to govern your spiritual seed. Now, Abraham, this is a blood covenant. Do you understand? I understand blood covenant, God. I understand blood covenant. Now, this is what I've told you I'm going to do. I'm going to do all these things. And if you want in, the one thing that I require from you is commitment. If you like what you hear, I want you to commit. Well, Lord, how do I commit? Well, this is blood covenant. Blood's got to flow. All right, Lord, shall I cut my... No, don't cut your wrist. I want you to circumcise yourself. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> Boom! And every day... you will be reminded because you will be different. In your reproductive organ, you are going to reproduce covenant relationship. You will always be mindful of this, and I believe that's why God did it in the reproductive organ. Now if you have a look here, verse 23, Abraham took Ishmael his son, all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with money, every male among Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day. And Abraham, watch verse 24, was 99 years old when he, circum when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. He circumcised himself. Yikes! Had to have a spirit of boldness and a steady hand. I mean, it's okay doing all the rest of them, but yourself? Woo! Anyway, so, 
Look at verse 26. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son and all the men of his house, born in the house and those that were bought to the money. They were circumcised with him. And that's how Abraham said, I want in on this deal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get blood flowing. Now there's some principles here that we need to understand. What one covenant partner requires of another, he himself is going to have to do. We're talking blood covenant. How does God bleed? We're going to check that out. Because God bled. And so Abraham says, I want in on this deal. This is for me. And the word beris means to cut where blood flows. And Abraham said, that's the deal. I like it. Here's my signature. Blood. T.D. Jake says, boom. Now, people enter into blood covenant for one or more of three reasons. The first one is protection and preservation. Now, you find blood covenant in operation in the world today. Africa, blood covenant relationship. Um, a weak tribe would enter into covenant with a stronger tribe so that they would not be annihilated. See, um, as a principle, the greater always covenants with the lesser. But the lesser can go in and make the suggestion. You may have two tribes living next to each other and the one is a tribe which traditionally is warlike and they're great warriors. But there's a little tribe over here and they're great farmers. So what they'll do is they'll say, look, these guys can overrun us anytime. We need to preserve ourselves. We need protection. So what we'll do is we'll go to them and say, guys, won't you enter into covenant with us? We are great farmers. We're not warriors. But we don't want you to come over here and annihilate us. So we're going to till the ground and we're going to grow food and we'll give you food. You give us protection. You understand? So the, the, the guys who are warriors say, look, we know how to fight, but we don't know how to plan stuff. Yeah, that's okay. Well, let's do that. And so they agree. And the initiative is taken by the greater who says, yeah, okay, we can see the need for that. You're not a, you're not a, you're not a thorn in our flesh. You feed us, we'll protect you. Now, the interesting thing about this, and I want you to understand that God operated in all three of these areas towards us when He cut covenant. God initiated the covenant that we enjoy. God sent Jesus to the cross from before the foundation of the world. You weren't even a, a twinkle in your dad's eye. And God sent Jesus to come and die for you. So God's done the initiating. And the protection and provision of, of uh, uh, preservation was given to the young tribe or to the small tribe by the greater ones. So that if an enemy came in against the small tribe, what they would do is they would hold up their hand and there in the wrist, in all probability in the wrist, you would see the sign of covenant relationship. Now, the people who want to attack the small tribe are in a quandary because they don't know how big the small tribe's covenant partner is. 
This is exactly what David had as a trump card. That's why he could go out there and they said, you're going to take him? David knew Goliath was dead from the time that he made the decision. Why? Goliath thought he's taking on David. He wasn't. He was taking on David plus covenant partner. And you can't beat God. And the devil can't beat you because of your covenant partner. That's why greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. See? It would have been a joke if it slipped, eh? The explorer Stanley... The explorer Stanley went through Africa. Couldn't work out why it was his Ascaris were stealing all his stuff. The Ascaris are a group of people who, are, who carry the, the, the bundles and the goods for people back in those days. He entered into blood covenant relationship. He had an advisor with him, and the advisor said, we've had enough of this. We've had to start this journey too many times. Every time the night comes and you put the goods down, you come back in the morning and the goods are depleted. They're stealing the stuff from you. And he said to the advisor, well, what do I do? He says, enter into covenant relationship. Who with? Get hold of the biggest chief in the area and enter into covenant relationship. So they went ahead and they did this. And we're going to follow through and hear some principles. One of the, uh, and I want you to hear this because I want you to remember the spiritual parallel. When you enter into covenant relationship with your covenant partner, you don't bring them your second best. You bring them your best. Now, Stanley had a problem, a digestive problem, and he had a goat that he took with him. He could only take in goat's milk. And so they're sitting around and they're talking about establishing a covenant between the two of them and the, and the king says, what does Stanley bring me? So Stanley shows him a whole bunch of things. He says, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. That's what I want. You want what? I want that, your goat. You want my goat? No, because you don't understand. I'm not parting with my goat. I can't handle. He says, I want your goat. That's what I want. I want the best thing, the most important thing to you, and it's that goat. So Stanley says, well, what am I going to get? He says, you're going to get this. He says, I'm going to get a spear with some brass stuff on it. That's what I'm going to get, and you're going to get my goat. So the interpreter says, yeah, that's what you're going to get. He says, I don't want this deal. He says, you better take it. Because we're never going to get this expedition off the ground. Stanley didn't realize that when he walked around, with this spear, all the other nations recognized the spear as being the personal spear of the king of that nation. And when Stanley produced this, it opened up all the doors of Africa to him. He never had another thing stolen from him. He now was in covenant relationship with the king of the greatest nation in the area. And this 
was what opened up the doorway to Africa, the spear that was exchanged for a goat. When you and I enter into covenant relationship with God, there are marks that come on the inside of us. Not marks in the natural body. That's why it doesn't make any difference how you dressed. It doesn't make any difference how, really, you conduct yourself. And I'm not talking about conducting yourself in a loose way. I'm talking about conducting yourself in a religious way. Because that doesn't impress God. The marks of the born-again believer is not a circumcision in the flesh. We'll see this next week. It's a circumcision of the heart. And spiritually, when you are changed from within, the manifestation of that change works outwardly. If there's no change within, there will be no ongoing changes on the outside. You can stay as ugly and as horrible and as dead on the inside and try and apply the cosmetic of being religious and nice. But it's not going to fly all the time. People are going to find that it wears thin pretty quickly. And people will see through that veneer. But to the person who comes into a right relationship with God, the circumcision is of the heart. And that's where the change takes place. Right here. And all the spirit realm know it. And when the change takes place in the heart, it works outwardly. And changes start taking place on the outside And they're not cosmetic. They're eternal, although they're ongoing. And that's why people will stand and look at you and say, what's different about you? And you're not even trying to be different. It's the change on the inside. We'll pick it up there next week.